from Relay FM, this is Upgrade, episode 459. Today's show is brought to you by Electric, Text Expander, and Factor. My name is Mike Hurley. I'm joined by Jason Snell. Hi, Jason. Hi, Mike. Big week this week. I feel like a bit, bit of unexpected news that mm-hmm. we're going to be talking about uh, before mm-hmm. WWDC, so that was fun. The ice is cracking, Mike. It's starting to crack. Yes. It's cracking. It's, it's, it's like... The, the, it's going to start breaking off into little pieces. The log jam, the ice jam is going to stop, and we're going to okay. and, and the, the is whole. Is there a log stuck behind glacier. the ice? Is that what we're it's saying? It's a glacier. I, I've decided it's a glacier. There are logs on the glacier. Anyway, it's oh. going to. There's a in this metaphor, things are starting to move. Okay. After a couple of months where thing, things were kind of bottled up, so the right. I, the ice is melting and flowing, and the river is going to the, the dam, the ice dam is going to burst, and it's going to just like the ice dam. Ice dam, yeah. There's a lot of metaphors in this. Locking up the river. I don't know. I don't even know what I'm talking about. Yes, what I'm saying is it's been very peaceful and quiet in the valley. There you go. (laughs) Wait, there's a valley now? (laughs) Apple Valley. Right. It's the name. With a glacier in it. Yeah, at the end of the valley, there's a glacier, and it blocks up the river, causing the lake, the glacial lake, to be there. But... Come late May, early June, come WWDC time, uh, everything heats up, whoosh, and then the river flows. That's metaphor of the day. I have a snow talk question for you. Comes from Sammy, who says, now that you work for yourself, do you still make keynote presentations? And if so, what for? Uh, I used to use keynote to do user group presentations, especially back in the day where I made them in made appearances at user groups in person. What happens is I went out on my own. Chris Breen got pulled inside Apple. He used to do presentations to Mac user groups all the time. And he basically bestowed them upon me. He said, talk to Jason. Jason could do them now that he's working at Apple. He could do it. And so I, I would do that. And those were keynote presentations generally. Um, pandemic hit. All of those user groups went online. And I did keynote presentations at the beginning and then I realized I kind of hated it and it was extra work that was unnecessary. And my new official user group posture is I, they're always like, do you have a slide deck? And I say, no, <laughs> I just, mm. I don't, I'm not interested in that now because I don't think it adds a whole lot. It's a lot of extra overhead for me. And um, I might as well use that time thinking about my content and sharing it with them and not having them look at slides that don't say anything anyway. So yeah, I used to use Keynote all the time. I don't anymore, um, but I still ha- I know how to use it. I mean, I, lo- I love Keynote, but I don't use it as much as I used to, for sure. If you would like to send in a question of your own to help us open a future episode of Upgrade, just go to UpgradeFeedback.com and submit a Snell Talk question. I would just like to say at this moment, I want to just extend the thanks to all of the Upgradians again who have wholeheartedly embraced UpgradeFeedback.com. I get so mm. much more high-quality follow-up and feedback than I've ever gotten in the entire history of us doing this show. So I just want everyone to know I really appreciate it. I read everything. Uh, even if it doesn't get included, it has been read. Um, this has and been I, great. And I don't read anything except what's in the show doc. I should probably rectify that. You can just go and peruse at your leisure. Can we get, yeah. All right, I will. Sure. But please don't delete I'm going to make some CMS requests later today, so watch out for that. Don't ask me. It's nothing to do with me. Oh, no. There's a channel. There's a channel called the Neon CMS in the Relay FM uh, Slack. You can go in there. For hosts. And you can direct it to the Yes, and then Steven can say, no, (laughs) 
We uh, will not do that, yes. Jason. Stop it. <laughs> Leave also, me can alone. I write a little script? <laughs> can I write a script that pulls it out and sends me a... And he'll say, no, do not scrape oh, my website. No, no, <laughs> no, no. I can tell you right now that no one's going to make a script to send this stuff out anywhere. Just log into the system. It's all in there. You know? don't or wanna, don't. I can handle I don't it. Read it. It's I don't fine. Like, mm, okay. I do have quite a lot of follow-up today. Uh, first off, we're yes. going to talk about pizza follow-up. Yeah, subcategory. Yeah. Pizza follow-up. Pizza follow-up. Uh, lots of people, lots of people wrote in to let us know that the pizza place that you enjoyed, Jason, was mm-hmm. called in Utah, was called The Pie Pizzeria. Yes, it is the pie. It's got a, like a pie symbol, uh, in, at least in, in like a neon sign. Uh, it was. It, it's funny because all this feedback came in after somebody asked me directly on Mastodon where what one I was talking about, and I went and I looked it up. It's the Pie Underground location, thirteen twenty East two hundred South Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, and get the barbecue chicken with Gouda. It's good. That's that's my recommendation. But I, I love that place too because it was this kind of like dark underground neon sign, very college. I loved it. It was uh, a lot of fun. That was a fun experience. I took what I will say uh, is my whole I, family there. I won't time. read this person's feedback in entirety because I'm not sure that I should, but I heard from somebody who was a previous manager of this exact place and they were very unhappy with the company. But oh, well, maybe that you know, all I just had a bad time. That's an interesting thing to share on a podcast feedback form. <laughs> <laughs> I will just say that I endorse the pizza there. I have no, I have no. I went there once and I had the best. I think pizza it was I've more just like they didn't That's like it. their job, right? When they were there. Well, I think that was again, thing. I, I'm I, honestly, if I was working in the underground location, I really, you know, you n- don't see the sun. It's also a college place, right? So there's probably unruly college people, college mm-hmm. bros making trouble. But um, I'm just saying, put smoked gouda on a pizza. On a barbecue chicken pizza, it's it's a pretty good idea. Also, I should also mention now a little footnote: not an improved John Syracuse of pizza flavor. Just if you were curious, it's not because I I made pizza one time at home and I made two of them. Uh, one of them was a a cheese pizza, I think, or maybe a pepperoni pizza, and then the other one was a barbecue chicken pizza at a party at which John Syracuse was present, and he said, "That's not pizza." <laughs> Okay, speaking, whatever it is, it's really good. Speaking of approval, this wasn't shared with the feedback form, but in fact, via my own uh, iMessages from Federico Vitici, the pizza segment of Upgrade is horrifying. I'm sorry, but HONEY, in all caps, I died. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he, oh, no. All right, Federico. He told me he died. It killed him. The honey killed him. Maybe Federico has a honey allergy. I don't know. It's the hot part that was the uh-huh. problem. But like, hot this honey. is just one of those things where... like. I love Federico. Cultural differences. I love Syracuse. Nobody yeah. can tell me that they own pizza. <laughs> no one can tell me that. No. Uh, <laughs> if if anybody out there is an ATP uh, member, there was a there there was the P, the frozen FedExed pizza episode. Bizarre uh, member special. Fascinating. Bizarre but fascinating. And uh, it really gets down to the nub of it, which is John Syracuse loves the pizza that he had when he was a kid, and Casey Liss loves the pizza he had when he was a kid, and Marco lived in Ohio so he didn't love anything. <laughs> and that's and there we are. There maybe a hot pocket at that place in New York. A John's a bleaker? Yes. And it yeah. is excellent. And Casey I, I have no Liss doubt it is. Did one of the th- did something to me that was one of the best things that any human has ever done to me. So 
he bullied me to go to this restaurant, right? Yeah. Like, he would not stop. So I think me and Adina were there, and he was just, like, constantly bullying us. So we went, we ate there. It was wonderful. And I tell you, this is fantastic. And I asked for the bill, and he said, Sir, but your friend Casey called. He paid the bill. That is a classy move. That That is a classy move. Let it be known. That is... That is the power move. I yep. love it. Excellent. Amazing. Because he has been taking care of off sir. my case about this it's restaurant. Been taken care of. <laughs> so, well, no, no wonder. So, so that's the message to all the upgradians. Go to John's Bleaker order pizza. Maybe Casey Text will Casey. pay for it. <laughs> Maybe. 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 But I, I, I mean, I just the, the larger story there is that I think there's some people who want to be authoritative and say. um, you know, this is the only way, but what they really mean is this is the way that they like it and love mm-hmm. it and have come to know it. And it's the, this speaks to them and it feels like home to them. Yeah, and or I totally, is like culturally totally a certain thing, right? Like pizza is a, seems yes. to be a meal, which a lot of cultures well, hold the, on the, to. The laugh out, the laugh out loud moment in that episode is our feedback for a members only special. But anyway, the laugh out moment in that episode is when John is describing br- the Brugger's Bagels, I guess, location that he goes to in Massachusetts because they have acceptable bagels. And he says, oh, they also have stupid things like blueberry. But other than that, and uh, I was listening to this on a car trip with uh, Lauren and uh, she just laughed out loud when he said the stupid things like blueberry. Because like, again, blueberry, not canonical. Uh, you look askance at any place that has a blueberry bagel. It's like blueberry bagels. You know why they make them? Because people like them and they sell. Yeah. Yeah. That's why they make them. Yeah. Uh, you might not like it, and that's fine. Anyway, barbecue chicken pizza is a pizza. If you say that this place is like the best bagel place, and that your best bagel place also makes the type of bagel that you like, it means it's still like you're you're endorsing the bagel place, right? So like they make yeah. it. So yeah. So so you got to put a, some asterisks if they. You got to accept bagels it. you don't like. I yeah. I don't know. Anyway, I, what I'm saying is, barbecue chicken pizza is good, and I enjoyed the pizza I had in Salt Lake City. And I'm I'm sorry if you work there. I don't know. I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> Claude wrote in to say that they were perusing Trader Joe's new items being added to the Trader Joe's lineup, and they found hot honey, and so they wanted to tell to share that with me, which I thought so, was yes. Funny. Hot honey is an ingredient that is available if you didn't know. Yes, we mentioned it last time. It uh-huh. is available. You can get I've it. gotten it in my meal box. Yep. Uh, several times in the last Great. year or two, and I will say. Uh, it always felt like an unnecessary additional ingredient to me mm-hmm. where where we would Lauren would usually say something like, there's hot honey if you want to put that on there, but I don't think it's necessary. And I would look at the food and I'd be like, I agree. This is totally unnecessary. So we still actually have packets of hot honey uh, in hot our honey. pantry. Well, then put it on the pizza, Jason. Maybe I will. Maybe I will. This very weekend, I had a pepperoni pizza with enduya, which is a spicy sausage, and honey. And that mm. thing was incredible. So they didn't have pepperoni at that place, or I would have put it on there, but they didn't have it. Isn't it andouille? Mm. Do you mean andouille? No, I don't. Andouille? It's a different thing. N-D-U-J-A, enduya. Oh, it's a yeah. different... Oh, well, that's Totally different thing. Yeah, andouille sausage is a different thing. That's very weird. Anyway, hot honey, huh? Okay, well, honey. so noted. And that ends our pizza follow-up. <laughs> no more pizza follow-up. <laughs> For We're going to talk Until about iPhone time. pricing now. Instead. All right, let's move so, on. 
A few people wrote in with a version of this. I will read Gaurav's feedback because it was the most complete. Regarding iPhone prices in India. So we were talking about this a lot when talking about um, uh, the earnings last time and the growing uh, sales market for Apple in India. Mm -hmm. Uh, Gaurav says, The reason prices are a problem is due to import duties put on electronics not made in India. An iPhone 14 Pro base model here is priced at what would equate to 1588 US dollars, which is 50% higher than the standard US sales price. Many of us get our iPhones via friends and family living abroad for this reason. Previous year non-pro models have been made in India for a while and have similar or lower prices than in the US. While still too expensive for the majority of the Indian population, even a small percentage is a decent absolute number. So this to me was the biggest reason of like, oh, Apple's making things in India. Yeah, because they want to sell them. The idea of the diversification is like, but well, see, I don't know if I missed this, but I just always thought it was diversification. But no, this is also Not because just. they want to sell the products in these countries. No, this is literally why they make iPhones in Brazil is because Brazil has a huge tax on that stuff brought in from outside Brazil. And they're like, okay, well, maybe we should just make a factory in Brazil. And India, if it's got a huge potential market, then making phones in India, since they've got a huge tariff, is a way to do that. So yeah, Mm -hmm. that's part of the equation for sure. That's also probably what they tell China, right? It's like, oh no, no, it's the the taxes. That's what it is, taxes. But that makes more sense to me because when we were talking about that report a while back of like like what they're gonna likely be doing, I was saying that it seemed strange to me to like it still be Foxconn, like still be the same companies you've been using. Right. If if the idea was you were going di- to like diversify your business, but maybe it's not so much that as it is diversifying the revenue of the company a bit mm-hmm. more. So, interesting. Yeah. Good. Thanks, Garab. And so also some follow-up on data and ads. We were talking about that in the in last week's Ask Upgrade question. Adrian wrote in Adrian, sorry, wrote in with just some, some thoughts on on device processing for us to consider. Uh, Adrian says, I think the question about on-device processing is complicated, especially because we don't know exactly what Apple means by on-device. It could be a gradient from no data collected at all by Apple to either raw or processed data, all the way to collecting some data, like like processing on device, sending it away or sending it back. Because you can only process data on device but then upload the results back to Apple servers. And to this, there is a component of Apple whose businesses add services not as large as Google for sure. I think Apple should clarify more clearly. Do you feel like you fully understand like when Apple say on device, they mean it is 100% on device never leaves? Or what? I read it as the the model is on the device and the machine learning model runs on your device. So it's not sending your data to be analyzed on Apple's server and then the information returned to you. Instead, your data stays on the device. Now, I agree, it could be read as nothing leaves your device, but what's what's actually happening is the data is being processed on your device Mm -hmm. and the results could potentially be stored in the cloud, right? Or sent to Apple servers. And in some cases uh, they may indeed be doing that. It's also possible that they're 
you know, they're processing the data. And then we have another piece of feedback here that's like it's local processing, but then it uses that to request um, specific information uh, from a web service, right? Which is not the same as sending them your data and having them build a profile of you up on in the cloud. Um, instead, what happens is it's personalizing you on your device and then asking for the right ad or whatever to be to be sent to you, which is not quite the same. But it's also not like this Mac is an island or this iPhone is an island, and it's not no data ever leaves it. Like that's not what's going on necessarily. Right, because like you know, they say Siri is on device, right? But it can't all be like if you want the sports score. Right. My iPhone doesn't just know what the sports score is. Right. Yeah. It's you it's you, querying data querying data sources out there, but it's doing it after having processed yeah. your command on device to then go and do that. And this is like this is what we went into last time is that there are a lot of different ways to consider on device as a pro or a con. Um, and yeah, Apple. I mean, Apple is using a lot of this as marketing, and then there's this question of sort of like, well, what what do they actually use it for? And um, I, I honestly, I, I feel like Apple just needs to be better at disclosing it. I think that generally yeah. they do. They are right. I mean, they're 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 not trying to to pull one over on you when they say that they value privacy. I I, I do genuinely believe that, but I think that there are probably areas within Apple where there needs to be more disclosure. Uh, and we also had somebody write in, and and somebody, an, an anonymous individual. Uh, oh, is this a mic uh, secret? Informant? I wouldn't call this no, because they they're just quoting me something from something which is publicly available on the web. Okay. Um, from Apple's ads policy, it says we may use local on-device processing to select which ad to display using information stored on your device, such as the apps you frequently open. So this was a thing we were talking about last time, mm -hmm. and it's the thing that Apple does actually do. Like we were wondering, like you know, do they or could they target ads based on the apps that I use? Yes, they one hundred percent can yeah. and do, in fact, which I don't think is good. And do it locally on your device, so that your device doesn't say, "Here are all my apps. Uh, send me an ad." Your device looks at your behavior and says. Um, I would like this ad, please, uh, right. or an ad in this category, please, and do it that way. So it's sort of like your device is doing that. It's a little bit different. Which, if you ask me, like, in some ways, kind of worse. Bear with me here, because what Apple is doing is this is still using your usage data to target ads yes. at you, and then also saying that is fundamentally wrong for anybody else to do. Well, what they what they say is it's fundamentally wrong. This is the goes back to the classic example, which is like if it's a first party, it's fine. So Apple considers itself to be the only party, right? Which is just a is flawed. That assumption is flawed, right? So so Apple doesn't. Apple is it, it, it since it has the app store, it has the app data, and it's first party, and therefore it's okay. Whereas Facebook does not have that app data and you know when you share things with a another party see, then it's the oh, then it's, it's different like, but what's is the it... party right is that cuz i would say that like it should be the app store not my entire iphone right right i feel like the app store knowing about things i have bought on the app store and searches i have made on the app store and using that data to show me more apps that feels fine but Apple using the information about the apps that I open right. to serve me ads on the App Store, that feels like an overreach. 
Yeah. We heard from somebody else who said that this Apple monitoring, uh, if you do the telemetry approval, basically setting, that that is giving it explicit approval for Apple to receive the information about what apps you're using and how long you're using them and things like that. Mm -hmm. I'm unclear because this is we may also use. I'm unclear whether that is controlled by this that switch or whether there is another flow that's happening here. But you're right. This is apps you frequently open and and presumably the length of time you spend in apps, right? Because that's the that's the the magic formula and only Apple has access to that because they're the platform owners. So they can yep. see every tap and they can also um using I mean they use it it's exposed in screen time, right? They know how long you're in every app too. And so they know a lot about you and what games you're playing and what productivity apps you're using and you know whatever else you're doing. And and uh so yeah, this is this is the <laughs> I think I think we're not necessarily saying this is wrong. I think what we're saying is uh, disclosure is good, and also that as a caveat emptor kind of thing, um, just because it's happening on device doesn't it, on device isn't a panacea. On device does not mean you're not being profiled and watched, and your behavioral data is not being used mm-hmm. to generate content that is targeted on you. What I think is wrong is that Apple make such a big thing about third parties like an other like you know that they they've app tracking transparency to like completely hollow out the advertising market for all of these different apps and services but they kind of just get to do whatever they want like they could just build the rules around however they want them to be built and no one can argue with it because they control the platform and have the app store and have in-app purchases and then make the rules to make everyone use that system. Like, I don't like the playing field that's being created. I don't think it's fair. But your mileage will vary on that one. This episode is brought to you by Electric. When leading your small business, it's not all glamorous. In fact, sometimes it's just a matter of spending hours onboarding an employee and helping them set up a password for their computer. You could be well-equipped to do all of these things. Maybe you don't have the time or maybe you don't want to. The team over at Electric knows that small businesses like yours face these kinds of challenges every day, which is why they're on hand to help with the time-consuming parts of your business, like standardized device security of best-in-class device management software so you can implement best practices across the board and be ready to scale. Employee onboarding and offboarding will be done for you, saving you an average of eight hours per request, keeping a single point of visibility into your IT environment to help you control your devices, networks, and applications, simplifies reporting that allows you to achieve and maintain compliance and offers proactive IT recommendations and automated workflows to make IT easier to manage even for non-technical users. Look, if you're hearing all of this and think that your company could use any of these services, but you're not sure where to start, Electric's experts will guide you through the process of establishing standardized IT processes for your organization. I like to try and save time in my business however I can. The idea of having to set up this stuff for other people sounds terrifying. Like being on hand tech support when you're also trying to lead the business, it's not a great mix. For upgrade listeners, Electric is offering a free pair of Beats Solo 3 headphones for taking a qualified meeting. Just go to electric.ai slash upgrade. That is electric.ai slash upgrade. Go there right now to get your free pair of Beats Solo 3 headphones today for scheduling a meeting. Our thanks to Electric for their support of this show 
and Relay FM. Saddle on up. It's time for a rumor roundup. Yeehaw. The Wall Street Journal has published a report uh, of what it is expecting from Apple's upcoming headset. It treads a lot of ground that we have heard before in general. Yeah. Um, yep. Like again, but like this stuff can be important. We're going to talk about a few things that are that they've specifically reiterated from reporting from Mark Gurman and others. But in general, the article's like it's going to cost this. It's going to be a battery pack. The whole nine yards that we're aware of. Uh, one of the things that they talk about is that while Apple is still planning to announce the headset at WWDC and, of course, devote a significant portion of the sessions at the conference to the headset and its operating system, production of the device is still suffering from manufacturing delays and is now expected to begin in September, which is very light for selling it this year. Yeah. Yeah, very much. So I would I would not be surprised if even when this thing goes on sale that it might be one of those things that's hard to get for a while i think it's going to be very limited numbers even in the fact that it's already going to be limited you know like it's limited to start uh and if they're producing it this late in the day it could be even more so Mm -hmm. uh they the wall street journal reiterates what mark german has been saying that the expectation of the device is to be positioned kind of publicly around facetime fitness and gaming Mm-hmm. So probably Fitness Plus, probably Apple Arcade, and these being the core use cases for this iteration of the hardware, like from Apple. And then, you know, building the whole platform, people can do whatever they want with it. I think this is, this is, I find this very encouraging, Jason, because if someone said to me, what you know, Mike, you have the ability to market this device however you want, how would you do it? I would do it around FaceTime fitness and gaming. <laughs> like it is the anyone who's who's had any experience with VR will tell you like these are the three areas where it's currently most compelling. And I was concerned that they weren't going to focus on that like especially around gaming. I'm still intrigued to see what their story is, but if this is where they are going with it, it I think has the best chance of being something that people could conceive of whether they have or haven't tried VR before. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. This is there's not there's not a lot new in this report at all, but it is the Wall Street Journal, um, which funny. I mean, Bloomberg is a very important, reputable um, asterisk, right? But like generally, generally reputable um, business reporting organization, um, but it's not the Wall Street Journal, right? And and so to get the journal involved here, it definitely carries more weight. Or, or to to have them essentially reiterate Mark Gurman's reporting also shows that. You know, there's nothing else there. Mark Gurman did it. He nailed mm-hmm. it. He got it. And the, the the journal's like, yep, that's what it is, which is kind of funny to see. Mark definitely leading the way there. Um, I have to say, because it's the journal um, and because they've got a lot of, you know, according to people familiar with the matter and all of that, I do wonder if this is Apple doing some expectation setting especially since they talk about at the very head of the article, there's a lot of talk about how this product isn't going to ship in volume and there are other products coming. And like it, the early part of the article felt very much like I'm not, I can't say whether Apple was directly involved in, in having the journal do this story or not, but it really feels like the beginning of this article is trying to set proper expectations for this product in advance of it being announced. And so if it's not, 
and we said this about some of Mark Gurman's reporting too, if it's not, it's doing Apple's job for it anyway, yep. because they need to set expectations that this is not something that everybody's going to want at first. And it's going to be, you know, mostly for developers and really, you know, specific kind of use cases because it's going to cost $3,000 and it's going to be all of that. Um, so it it has that feel to me of very useful for Apple expectation setting because they don't want people to be surprised thinking this product is going to be um, the thing they're going to rush out and buy and comparable to other stuff that is in this area. And by doing it this far in advance, one of the advantages is also is everybody who is going to be covering that event is already going to have the bar set for them. And so people, it's less likely that people are going to get misled by poorly informed sources who are like, I'm really excited to see this. We're all going to rush out and buy it. And instead they're going to be like, don't get too excited. This isn't going to come out until the end of the year at the earliest. And it's very expensive. And it's really just the start of something that's big, bigger. Like that serves Apple a lot better to not have it be a disappointment because people's um, expectations were unrealistic given what we know this product to be now. Um, however, there, it is interesting to also see the other side of it, which is um, the 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 hype that is in this article and some other places that is, but it's also really good. <laughs> yes. So they say uh, the capabilities are expected to, quote, far exceed those of competitors offering, quote, greater levels of performance and immersion. Yeah, and uh, and the Oculus former former Oculus guy Paul Merlucky, who is not my favorite person, but he did a tweet recently that basically said the Apple headset is so good. It's like, uh, which spawned. Um, this was yesterday. It, it spawned obviously thousands of articles that tried to make an article out of a single tweet with no additional information. I always laugh when I see that, but my point is. That is the other narrative that is forming here now that I see, which is don't get your hopes up because it's going to be expensive and you're probably not going to want to buy it and it's not going to come out for a while, but it's the future and there are other versions coming that are going to be more affordable. The journal says that the makers of this version are going to build a, they're already working on um, the next version of the high-end headset, but that Foxconn is also going to be manufacturing a more affordable headset based on this platform. So that's all in there, right? Plus you get this other piece, which is, but also it's very impressive. Like it is way better than even the high-end meta headset. And that, that honestly, that is one of the ways that Apple gets away with this $3,000 product that's going to ship in low volumes, which is what this story re repeats. And again, I think that's useful for Apple to say low volumes, low volumes, not expecting this to be a hit. It's just a starting point. Um, is the you know being able to say but you can see the future here this is the best that's ever if they can make it so it's this is the best headset that's ever been made it does things that vr products have never been able to do at this level before it totally changes the game this is what vr and ar are going to be like in the future the the future starts now now that apple is here everything before is a prologue everybody else is going to have to catch up to apple's level if they can impress people like that with the hardware that'll give them some leeway with the fact that it's expensive and um not available for a while and let them sort of tout the future um with this product which would serve them well i think do you think paul malucky actually saw it i don't know i mean i i think if anybody could have seen it i, I think it's plausible that he saw it he but i don't believe a word he says 
but I think it's, I don't believe I, it. I, I'm fascinated because yeah, and and he may be you know trolling right, but and yet I look at that and I think this is part of what's going on right now. Whether whether he believes it or not, whether he saw it or not, it feels very much like it's part of what's going on right now. Is we are in the hype cycle about the technology that Apple is building here, and I I was struck by the fact that that he tweeted that out at around the same time that the Wall Street Journal came out with their story that said far it far exceeds the capabilities of its competitors. I'm like, okay, well, something is going on here. Whether he's really a part of it or he's trying to parody it or insert himself in it or whatever it is, it's all part of this same drift that I'm starting to see now, which is, uh, you know, like I said, phase two of this is Apple, you know, Apple, Apple getting by on, but we're changing the world, right? It's yes, it's very expensive right now, but it's going to be the best. Yeah. Uh, which it's an, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's real. I don't know if any of it is real, obviously, huh. right? Because it doesn't exist yet. But it does feel like we're we're entering. I just uh, listeners, just pay attention to the hype cycle and note note the little, like it's not playing one note, right? There's a few notes out there. There's the don't get your hopes up, investors. It's not going to sell millions of units out of the gate. But also watch what we do. It's going to be very impressive. Like that's what's going on out there right now. I just the Palmer Lucky thing. Honestly, the thing that amuses me the most, other than its positioning similar to the Wall Street Journal story, is uh, I just laughed because I was searching for the Wall Street Journal story and I found a thousand um, crappy news articles that crafted an entire narrative around literally one sentence from one dude on Twitter. Amazing world we live in. Mark Gurman is reporting that Apple has increased internal testing of their M3 chips, uh, even as they're getting ready to launch more M2 Max. Uh, once again, Mark, we spoke about how he did this before. Mark Gurman has discovered this information from Apple having tested these chips on third-party apps as part of the validation testing for these uh, chips. So there have been people that have used it, like people have used an M3 Mac or, or a Mac with an M3 chip in them inside of Apple on a third-party app. Those apps, no, because they have logs. So the chip is expected to be, uh, that the chip that, that Mark has found is expected to be an M3 Pro. Um, and it, quote, at least one version in testing has 12 CPU cores, 18 graphics cores, and 36 gigabytes of high of memory, and it's six high-performance cores, six efficiency cores, or P&E cores as we know them around here. Uh, this compares to the eight CPU cores in the M1 Pro and 10 cores in the M2 Pro, so it continues that line. The M1 Pro had 14 GPU, M2 Pro had 16 GPU, and also that 36 gigabytes of RAM is a four gigabyte increase on what the uh, M2 Pro could be. Quote from Mark, if the M3 Max were to get a similar gain as the M2 Max got compared to the M1, that would mean Apple's next high-end MacBook Pro chip could come with up to 14 CPU cores and a whopping 40 graphics cores. By the way, I really enjoy Mark in Power On because he saying, says things like whopping, which I don't think he would mm. put in an actual like... Uh, official like Bloomberg one article. of the official yeah. ones, yeah. I don't think he'd say whopping. Whopping. I appreciate whopping. Yeah. Uh, continuing, speculating even farther, it could mean the M3 Ultra could top out with 28 CPU cores and sport more than 80 graphics cores up from a 64 core limit on the M1 Ultra. And all of this, if they are actually going this route, and if Mark's extrapolating can be believed, 
uh, this is because of the th- three nanometer process change. So they can yeah. fit all of this in because they have, in a very simplified way of saying this, more stuff they can fit inside of the same size. Yeah, so this is basically nothing really surprising, right? It's the progression. What makes an M3 more than an M2 in part is going to be more, more cores. I mean, I'm sure that those cores are more advanced cores, right? The CPU cores and the GPU cores. I'm sure there's other details that are going to be interesting about the M3 and the M3 Pro, but also it's more, right? And every, you know, the cores are faster, but they're also more cores, even as a base. And then in the um, if they're doing the die shrink, then it's right that they benefit from that because everything mm-hmm. is on the smaller process. You could have the same amount of high performance cores, but they could be more powerful as well. So it's just very That's true. interesting. That's true. So I think this is interesting too because he's using you know some third-party developers' logs mm-hmm. who are squawking on this, who are revealing what these chips are. Uh, but also that it's uh, the Pro models. And I, I wonder, because the M3, because he talks about this being like end of this year, early next year, but like this is the Pro chip, right? This is not the M3 chip. This M3 Pro chip, it's different. I would imagine we're going to see the M3 chip before we see the M3 Pro chip. And I know Mark has reported on that before, mm-hmm. but this is interesting because it's it's more some telemetry that suggests that uh, these are, you know, the, that the Pro chips are going to be configured like this. So it's just another little addition to the the palette of what we already know about M3. All right, moving on. Apple has lost another key executive in the Apple TV Plus division. Pete Distad has departed the company, uh, quote from Bloomberg. In his current role, Distad oversees the business and operations side of the Apple TV app and the TV Plus streaming service. His division negotiated deals with Major League Soccer and Major League Baseball and turned the Apple TV set-top box into a hub for video content, both from inside and outside the company. Distad's departure follows uh, Peter Stern and Michael Abbott, who both had key roles at the company and left recently. Stern was Distad's boss, and Abbott oversaw all of the cloud services. And you may think, why are we bothering to talk about this? There's two reasons. One, that in, like the, the person who oversaw the sports stuff is leaving. That's interesting. But for me, the real key of this story is where this continues. So uh, Peter Stern and Michael Abbott, right? So Michael Abbott was in charge of cloud services. He is now joining General Motors to oversee the in-vehicle software plans Woo-hoo. that they have post-carplay. Boo. <laughs> it's perfect. I love it. Uh, moving forward, Apple's going to be splitting the role that Distad had in half. Jim DiLorenzo will head up a new sports division, and they're looking for a replacement for the TV side of the business. Uh, but this is the like business part of TV Plus. The content part Remains the same, still handled by Jamie Ehrlich and Zach Van Amberg. Yeah, down in, in Santa Monica or wherever they are. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, the way I think Mark Gurman reported this in his newsletter was something like, um, something's going on. <laughs> and I, I mean, maybe not. Maybe. I Part of me wonders if there's like a succession-like thing going on where everybody is jockeying for position around Eddie Q. <laughs> um, I don't know. But um, also, I have to be honest the way this guy's um role is described kind of doesn't make any sense to me because they are going to have this guy jim DiLorenzo 
heading up their new sports division. And then they're going to have somebody as the exec who's on in charge of the the TV side of the business, which to me makes more sense. But I don't I mean, as we've said many times about executives leaving Apple, very hard to tell from the outside what it means. Like yeah. we don't know enough about the way it's structured on the inside. We don't know their reasons for leaving. Sometimes people leave Apple because they're fired. Sometimes people leave Apple because they are bored and want a new uh, challenge. Sometimes they've got so much money that they just don't need to stay and work the hours or work the grind. They have family issues. They've got other personal issues. Who knows? But I was surprised that, you know, yeah, I mean, that it's his division negotiated deals, but like the fact that it's the business and operations side of the TV app and the TV plus streaming service and the result is going to be they're just going to put somebody in charge of sports and somebody inside of the TV part of the business. It, yeah, kind of makes sense. It feels a little bit like they're just not, this guy was a higher level of management that is leaving and they don't need to replace him because they've got people in place or they've got at least the one person for sports in place and then they'll find another person at a lower level. Sort of, sort of makes sense. I don't yeah, know. What, what this feels like to me is that like this dad's been there for long enough potentially where sports didn't even exist. And so then when yeah. they wanted to do sports, they went to Distad because he was already do- handling the business and operations right. and they, side. And they brought in Jim DiLorenzo to, to do that. And now he's just going to report up to Eddie or whoever. Yeah. But it's like this is the, you know, as the service grows, it's like, well, realistically, it would be better to have multiple people do this. But how do we take this away from the guy who's already doing it? Right. Like, yeah. that's almost like a demotion for them. So mm-hmm. now that exactly. he's left, it's like, great. Now we can split this in half and we can have a more logical. Uh, reporting structure as this yeah. these two parts of the business continue to grow. I think so. This episode is brought to you by our friends over at Text Expander. When you work in a small team, every single moment counts. You don't want to have to waste your time finding video conferencing details to send to a new client. You don't want to have to dig through your company's FAQs, probably on your website, to find a question, an answer to send to somebody. These are the kinds of things you want at your fingertips at all times so you can get your work done faster, and that is why you need TextExpander. With TextExpander, you can access what you type the most with just a few keystrokes, allowing you to work faster and eliminate repetition. This will make sure that you're streamlining the work that your team and you are doing, focusing on what matters most to the tasks at hand. TextExpander's powerful shortcuts and abbreviations will make everybody's lives easier. All you have to do is type in a short abbreviation and text expander does the rest for you the team sharing stuff is so important to the work that we do here at relay fm for example all of our ad copy is stored inside a text expander and then we use those text expander snippets to expand into our ad system but it gives us this one like saved base of content and like when as we're making changes to the ads themselves it's synced with everybody and they can be deployed where they need to be it's very very helpful for us you just build and collect your most commonly used phrases messages urls and more right within text expander create a chosen abbreviation and they'll be with you wherever you're typing you can even customize snippets by having them automatically add in dates uh, fields for you to fill in, so like fill in the blank fields, timestamps, and more to make sure that you're keeping personality in the communication that you send and just getting rid of the busy work. 
Tax Expander is available on any device that you use, in any app that you use, on the Mac, Windows, Chrome, and iOS. If repetitive typing is getting you down, you need Tax Expander. Check out Tax Expander today at textexpander.com slash upgrade, and you can get 20% off your first year. That is textexpander.com slash upgrade to say goodbye to repetitive typing. Our thanks to Tax Expander for their support of this show and Relay FM. So out of nowhere, last Tuesday, Apple announced that both Final Cut Pro and Logic Pro will be coming to the iPad. These long-standing Mac professional apps for video and audio creation. Uh, these are apps that me and you use. They are apps that me and you especially have been calling on Apple to release for years. Yep. There has mm-hmm. been absolutely zero sign of them. And then all nope. of a sudden, here they are. Here they are. Well, they'll be out next week, right? Yes. Um, but they announced them. Yeah. How about that? How about that? It, uh, on one level, I um, want to celebrate. Uh, and on another level, I want to say, what took them so long? Yeah. Right? It's that. It's a little bit like saying, do we praise them for replacing the butterfly keyboard? <laughs> Or do we point out that it's been a long time and they didn't replace it until now and that they're rectifying their own mistake? This is not quite like that, but it's similar where they they announced pro iPad hardware a very long time ago. And I think the real turning point was in 2018, I think, when they did the new iPad Pro design and they pointed out that it's, it was faster than more than 90% of PC laptops sold in the previous year or that year or whatever their stat was. And it was that that was the beginning of the real narrative of, okay, the iPad is powerful, but what does it do? The iPad Pro. And one of the questions was, how committed is Apple to this as a concept of a professional level? I mean, because you could argue, yes, I... Apple uses Pro to mean lots of things that aren't used by professionals. But the iPad Pro, it was always sort of like boasting about how powerful it was and that it really was a professional tool. And there was this impression that like Apple really believed in the iPad as the future and yet never committed its own Pro apps to its platform. And I I feel like the ultimate moment, although I also felt like I had already been broken by the time I wrote this, was when the iPad, um, the M2 iPad Pro came out. And they use they in order to show off its processing prowess, they demoed DaVinci Resolve. Mm. Like, I mean, DaVinci Resolve is great and people love it and it gets used all the time and it's fine and all, but it's also like literally you I, I can think of another product you could demo for video editing on the iPad, but it doesn't exist. And it's mm. your own product. So who's that ve- who's that vendor who's failing to support the iPad as a professional platform? Oh, right. It's Apple itself. Yep. And similarly with like their marketing, right? So much focused around like most of their products, video and audio creation is being like yeah. a key part of the product. But yeah. the video and audio creation tools that Apple made, make, continue to make, weren't available. And I'm not now. saying that like it's the only definition of the platform and I'm not saying they had to do it at all. Or, and I'm not, I, what I'm saying is I feel like Apple for years was talking the talk, but not walking the walk that they, they were like, no, 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 it is professional power in an iPad. And the iPad is great. It's got all this iPad pro you spend a lot of money you get, but you get all this power and isn't it amazing. And yet clearly within Apple, um, it was not a priority because they didn't, they didn't prioritize these apps. They just didn't. Obviously, I don't. I do not believe it's been seven years of hard work to get these apps to exist. Right? I don't believe that. I. I. I I'm sorry. They. I don't know what changed. 
And I don't know whether this was a long gestating product and they really have been working on it for four or five years and it took that long. But even then, I would say they could have done it faster if they had prioritized it and if it mattered truly that much to them. But it, they're here now or will be here shortly. And that's that's great. I mean, they look great. There are some quirks, but they look great. I just, uh, the the this is my long version of a finally but but like yeah, I mean finally, like I can I can applaud. I'll give you a golf clap for this one. But at the same time, like I'm glad they're here, and I think it does send a message about Apple feeling positive about what the iPad Pro is for. But at the same time, like it's a real shame that it took until 2023 for Final Cut Pro and Logic Pro to appear on the iPad. Should have been should have been like like I said, should have been 2020. Yeah. Should have been, should really should have been 2018 when they launched that new iPad Pro and boasted about its its speed. But we have spent this is the story of the iPad recently is we've spent the last five years ish um, talking about how it's so capable in terms of its hardware, but what about its software? And this has been part of it. Talking about like that, that I've probably jumped in the gun a little bit in our conversation, but I think where that is exemplified for me the most of like the finally like it took them so long kind of thing. I think the fact that it has taken so long and Final Cut Pro isn't as fully featured as Logic is in like, yeah. uh, what I should say is comparable to the Mac versions, it seems mm-hmm. like. That is the frustration for me. So that the key, this is the key thing that I got from your article, which I didn't see anywhere until you'd written it, which was Logic, the Logic Pro version on the iPad and the Mac, you can just pass off a file between the other apparently and and yeah. it will work with some asterisks like plugins and that kind of stuff but right right you have to have the plugins on both platforms not every plugin ma- uh, maker for mac has those plugins available on the ipad and if they're not there just like if you were on a different mac that didn't have those plugins the plugins won't be available but you can save a logic project on a mac and open it on an iPad, and it opens. And then you can edit it on the iPad, and then save it, and then open it on the Mac, and it opens, and it's fine, right? Like, they go, they are round-tripping, as they say. Um, and Final Cut, you can't. You can't do that. It is very much like the old, you can take a GarageBand file on the iPad and open it in Logic on on the Mac, or in GarageBand on the Mac, but you can't go back the other direction. It's yep. a one-way trip. So you can create your little, I mean... I don't want to demean it too much, but it has a, a little bit of a whiff of you can create your little baby project on the iPad. Uh, but once it's on the Mac, once it's graduated to the Mac, it can't ever go back. It, it's for starters, not for finishers. And that's unfortunate. I understand it. Like I was listening um, to Accidental Tech, po- Tech Podcast and uh, John Syracuse. I found his analysis a little bit odd because he seemed to be saying things like, why would you leave that feature out of the iPad version and thereby create this incompatibility? And I I don't view it that way. I think they built this stuff from I, I, don't, I don't my suspicion is that this is not a port of the Mac version of Final Cut Pro, right? My suspicion is that although there's probably code that is shared that they had to rebuild Final Cut Pro in order to work it work it on the iPad and that there was certain stuff that they're like we don't we can't do that yet or we're not ready to do that yet. We just didn't have time and they said, "Well, we're going to ship it now." Um but regardless of the reason, the fact is, yeah, there are things that the there are new features that are in this that presumably will also be in a Final Cut Pro update uh, later this month for the, on the Mac side, which is kind of funny, right? But they're they're pointing those out. 
I don't think it's going to be features that don't ever come to the Mac. I really think that they're going to be in sync from now. And I think they will try to add all the features that are not currently on the iPad to the Mac. But it is unfortunate that it's not as fully developed as the Logic uh, Mac and iPad versions are in terms of round tripping. And then the other thing that really bugs me as somebody who uses Final Cut and doesn't use a lot of the super high-end fancy features is, like, are they using the lack of existence of those features as a reason why it doesn't do round tripping or is it an excuse? Because, like, my projects are really simple. Why can't they do round tripping? And there's, you know, I don't have an answer for that, but it bugs me because, um, yeah, so, so I'm not sure maybe they just not file format compatible that for whatever reason, they just, they can't do that yet. So it's an import. And, you know, for all I know, this is a, you know, I, I, I just don't know. I don't know quite what the rationale is. Uh, Apple isn't really saying, but I do wonder about that because it means that the final cut story is not as clear as the logic story. And yeah, to your point, after all this time, we can say, send up the confetti. The pro apps are finally here, but there's a really big footnote, which is that this final cut is not fully featured. It's, it's, I think very impressive and has lots and lots and lots of features, but as a final cut pro, it's lesser than the Mac version and lacks a level of compatibility with a one-way import and that's that means it's a second class app at least for now which is it's it's too bad as impressive as it is like i, I want to separate here there's the sort of like comparing it to the mac version and being disappointed that it doesn't measure up is not the same as saying it's not good because i actually am very impressed by it at least the demos of it that i've seen i haven't had my hands on it i can't wait to do that but um but those are two separate issues but i do think that it's relevant that that this version just, I, I think they just wanted to release them and get them out there and do it simultaneously. And the, the you know, the Final Cut version just didn't get across the finish line in terms of that kind of compatibility. It's too bad. But like, this is the point that I was driving towards, which was by leaving it as long as they have, I think it makes it more glaring because... Sure. They're also not... And I think rightly so, they are not pitching these as like Final Cut for iPad. Like you know what I mean? Like it's not pitched as yes. like, hey, this is the companion, the companion. or lesser yeah. than version. No, to to their credit, they're not they're not saying I'm these are baby versions. That. Yeah. But they are but one of them is sort of, and that's too bad. Um and you're right. It it would be different if it was five years ago when they said and we're introducing Final Cut and Logic for iPad. They're not all the way there yet, but we're going to keep adding and they're going to reach parity eventually, we promise. But they didn't do that. They just did nothing or they were silent. Nothing above the waterline for five years. And now and now they put them out and it's still not quite all the way there yet. Like Again, I don't want to overstate it, but like it is disappointing if you're somebody who is a Final Cut user who expected to be able to go back and forth or that was the whole reason. I mean, for a lot of people, I had this with Logic, right? Which is... I have Logic on my Mac and um, Ferrite on my iPad. And the biggest problem with that is once I started a project on one, I couldn't take it to the other. Mm-hmm. And there are times, not not a lot of times, usually I stay on one device for the whole process, but there are times when I'm traveling or whatever and I have to offload um, or or I'm traveling and I come back and I want to now pick it up on the Mac. And, and like not having the ability to do that is really annoying, right? That, that you're locked into this one device and... And big, more than that, once you commit to starting in one place, your your 
limiting what your capability is after that. It's like, if I start this project on my Mac in Final Cut and I've got a trip coming up, I, like, I know I can't do it on the iPad or yeah. I, I will have to bring a laptop or I can't work on it. And that's, it, it just, it hangs over you. <laughs> and I think it's unfortunate. Yeah, I, you know, I, but I do go back and ask myself the same question of like, realistically, how big of a problem this is? And like, realistically, yeah. probably not. Right, like uh, my assumption well, is who, the majority of Final Cut <laughs> Mac users are going to keep using the Mac version, but now there is a there is a pro level iPad app from Apple for video, like that's the I, headline. Right, right, but not not, and it imports into the Mac version, so you could start your projects there. But realistically, I mean that's nice, right? Like, but realistically, for this thing to be actually true both of these to be true to what they should be that shouldn't have to be a prerequisite that like this is only good if you can eventually move it to the mac right like you should be able to start to finish have a professional grade project on the ipad like that should be the goal sure i I guess the problem is that if you're going to call it final cut pro and it does and it and mm-hmm. it can only go one way that you're you're putting a barrier in terms of portability. And one of the Definitely. ideas here is that it's portability, right? Mm-hmm. One of the ideas here is I can take it to an iPad and continue working and you can't do that. And that that is a barrier. You're right. It's not it's not the only use case. It is a use case. Um it's but you're right. The other use case is you're just working on these projects on the iPad and that's where you start. Um, and maybe that's where you finish. And that's fine, right? Like, that's great. But because these are these brand names, I think there's at least some level of expectation that you might want to have flexibility. And Apple's built in one-way flexibility for Final Cut, and it's two-way flexibility for Logic. And it's just, it's a difference. It's notable. I've definitely been in those situations with Logic and Ferrite in the past where I've, I've realized that I'm locking myself into one platform and it's better if you have the freedom. It's better if you have the flexibility. But what the but your point also gets to something that I want to say, which is, as far as I can tell, like these aren't apps where it's you get started here and then take it to the Mac for the for the finishing touches and the real work begins there. Right? That's not what they're doing here. These apps should be able to be used to their fullest just on the iPad and produce professional level output right? Like you should be able to export a project from Final Cut on an iPad and choose what encoding it does for the output and, you know, to a detail and it will transcode it and save it. And like all the stuff that Final Cut does without having, oh, well, but the last mile, you got to go back to the Mac. That's mm-hmm. not the intent here with no. these apps. Which I think is coming from a good place, but that is a, it, there is a missing puzzle piece, which only on Final Cut. So, like, we've spoken about that. So we'll park that a second. For Logic, fantastic. You did it, right? Like, Mm -hmm. again, we haven't tried it, but, like, on the face of it, you did it. You made a version of Logic for the iPad, which is fully featured, it seems, and offers the ability for me to be able to move these files backwards and forwards. Like, that one, fantastic. I'm really intrigued to see what it would be like to edit a podcast on Logic on the iPad? Like, I have no idea. We don't even really know if it's possible, but we expect so. So I've spent like six or seven years now editing podcasts on Ferrite uh, Mm -hmm. using the Apple Pencil on the iPad. Um, It's a great experience. 
I, mm, you know, the truth is I, I look forward to trying it out, but I can't imagine that I'm going to abandon Ferrite for Logic. And the reason is Logic's a music app. Ferrite is actually made to edit podcasts. <laughs> Logic is a music app. Um, I'm skeptical. Some of the stuff, I'll put it this way. Some of the stuff I'm going to look at when I review this is going to be beyond the, um, you can use it with your fingers kind of approach. Because um, what, what Apple is basically saying in their marketing is you can use it with your fingers. And if you put it in a case, you can use it with a keyboard and it's got all the keyboard shortcuts. What I didn't hear and what I don't see in a lot of the videos that they've done is the stuff that actually has made it a, a quantum leap in terms of usability on the iPad when I'm using Ferrite, which is things like multi-touch gestures, the the two finger down play pause. There are, in those Apple videos, there's an awful lot of reaching all the way up with your right hand to the upper left-hand corner of the screen to tap, covering the screen with your arm to tap pause or play. Let me tell you, gets old real mm -hmm. fast. So what did they do? My, so my concern is that there are invisible things that show that how far behind they are with these apps. That's that's the way I might put it, is they look great. They seem to have a lot of stuff. But I will say, in the early days of pro apps on the iPad, they also looked great and had a lot of stuff. But over time, those app developers learned that there were usability issues with the touch interface that needed to be addressed. And my favorite example is two-finger play pause in Ferrite where I don't want to reach up to a button on a touch screen f with look moving my eyes away from what I'm working on in order to touch a thing way up there and then come back and work and then go back up and do that. You start doing that all the time. It's really annoying. And the moment where I was like, no, no, you just tap with two fingers and it plays or pauses and you continue with your work, like totally unlocked it. Similarly with a pencil, um, they show a feature in Final Cut Pro where you're drawing, you can actually write something out on the screen and it becomes uh, it becomes a track mm -hmm. where the actual animation of you writing it out is part of the track. It's cool, it's mm -hmm. fun. But like for me, the productivity enhancing features of pencil are things like gestures, you know, down with the pencil to, to cut a track in Ferrite or uh, uh, bringing, the, bringing it across to do a mass select or a mass delete. There are things like that or multi-finger swiping to do a mass select or a mass delete. And and all of those things make my life easier. And Apple didn't show any of them. Doesn't mean they're not there. I haven't used it yet. But my concern is that what we're going to get with these apps is the apps that are there functionally and there if you're using basic touch, but have not learned any of those lessons that all the other apps that are trying to do pro stuff on the iPad have learned over the last few years in terms of additional usability and functionality that's enabled by a, you know, multi-touch gestures and various pencil gestures. And the fact that they didn't show you editing either of these things with a pencil, it was really just the drawing on the screen with the pencil. I'm a little concerned. I, I Maybe it's all there, right? And they just, it wasn't the focus of their marketing. But the fact that they didn't show it makes me a little concerned that this is going to be a case where they're going to, we're going to now spend the next few years waiting for them to catch up in terms of a lot of the niceties of using a professional media app on the iPad. So $5 a month rather than yeah. a multi-hundred dollar upfront purchase. Yeah. Um, you know, I got, uh, I got the two platonic ideal replies when this was announced on Mastodon. 
Um, one of them was, how come it doesn't work with this specific model of iPad? Let's investigate how many cores there are and how much RAM there is and whether there's a reason why this one is not compatible. Logic isn't compatible with this one, but it is compatible with that one, which is takes us back to a year ago. And boy, I am not interested in that at all. And the other one was, OMG, Apple's doing subscriptions. It's the end of the world. Which is fine. Like, I know people hate subscriptions, but for professional apps, I feel like not only is this fitting, but it's a it's a good deal. So Final Cut costs $300. <laughs> so at $50 a year, six years. $200, $50 a year, four years for Logic. This is... And yes, they haven't charged a new fee there for a while, but part of that is because of the App Store, right? But like, I don't think it's unreasonable uh, to ask people to buy a new version of of Logic every six years, right? Like that that seems reasonable. Fifty dollars a year for a professional application seems reasonable if you are a true professional. And something that I know Federico brought up on Connected last week that I think is absolutely true, which is let's talk about this for the people who can't afford to buy a three hundred dollar piece of software. For $5 a month, they could work, they could see, first off, they could do a 30-day free trial, which you can currently do with Apple's Pro Apps anyway. But like, let's say you've got a project and you're like, well, I need to work on this project for three months in Logic or in Final Cut. Well, it's $15. It's $15. Whereas before, after the 30-day trial, you're either in for two or $300 or you're out. So I think it's better for the apps and for users who might potentially use them to be able to try them out or use them on certain projects without having to come up with $300 in a lump sum. I think that that's, I mean, not everybody can pay $300 for a piece of software without flinching, right? It's just the truth of it. I know that a lot of our listeners maybe can, um, but a lot of our listeners can't. And it's a high price. So taking it down to a $50 payment for a whole year or a $5 payment for a month is... I think important, but the larger issue is these are professional media creation tools. $5 a month or $50 a year is a bargain. Um, I pay $120 a year for Photoshop, right? If you buy the whole Adobe suite, it is a lot of money every year. These are, you, they're not, they're tools made for professional, for professionals to use. That's why, why they're there. That's why they exist. Um, a professional who is making their living at least in part from using Final Cut Pro to edit video, if they can't afford $50 a month for that, I are they a professional who's using Final Cut? I mean, like, it, it is part of your job. It is the material you use to make your job happen. It's perfectly reasonable. And I think in this case, as Apple has shown a commitment to updating these products, as a Logic user, we get Logic updates all the time. Mm-hmm. And they have been updating Final Cut Pro over the years all the time. I feel like uh, subscription is actually a better fit than this really awkward every so often when you least expect it, we are going to hold your software ransom for $300. <laughs> like, what is that? That is, I remember when Final Cut 10 came out and it was like, oh, guess it's time to pay $300, right? So... I, th- I just think this is better on all on all ways. And for people who are like directly uh, against the idea of subscription, the truth is, unless you are willing to unplug your computer from software updates and 
off the take it off the internet and just use I'm using a 20-year-old computer with 20-year-old software and it all works for me. Unless you're that person who's kind of a, a digital hermit. Um, the truth is that you gotta update your software every so often. And this is just the the nature of things. Uh this is not that disruptive in terms of the business model. Like I said, $50 a year is is four or six years of these products. Is it not reasonable that every four or six years, your key professional tool would ask you for more money? Well, you know, for two or $300, $400, whatever it is, it's t- of course it's reasonable. So now you just pay, you pay it. And if you're not using it, don't pay it. Mm-hmm. And then your subscription lasts. I, I just, I, I have run out. If, if you haven't noticed already, Mike, I have entirely run out of patience for the people who say, I don't, I will never get software on a subscription. I, I have no patience left for them. I think it is wow. purely dogmatic. It's purely political. Um, and, it, and honestly, I think it's old thinking. I think it's, it's thinking of, of software in a way that was never realistic because of updates. This idea that I'm just going to be a hermit and never update my software. And if you are that person, I, I don't know what to tell you. This is better. And the people it serves by lowering the barrier to entry are important and, and grow the product base. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I uh, and by the way, I'll just put it out there. I said this in my story. Absolutely, Apple's going to do this for its Mac Pro apps too. Yeah, they just need absolutely. A, they just need a new revision and they like they'll add some stuff. I feel like they're going to sync they're going to sync it up. Yeah, and there'll be a new revision, and maybe these will be unified subscriptions, which would I was be nice. Say, but if not, I would want that. I feel like uh, even if it was like um, you know, you paid a little bit more and got both, right? So sure. like it wasn't like ten dollars a month, but it was like seven or eight would be would be cool. But I would do it if I felt like I needed to. Like I, yeah. I feel like. The subscription, like to to go on what you were saying, one if you are if you are the type of person who will never get software on subscription in a certain number of years, you're going to run out of software. Like this is not going to be any software for you anymore. Like because everything, especially professional tools, and it was always a subscription because you were always paying every so often. Yeah, and if you got into the fantasy that like, oh yeah, but I didn't update my computer for two years, and haha, I really showed them. Okay, and then two years pass, and you update your computer, and guess what? then you pay. So like, yeah. what were you even saving then? I think it's, I think it's, it's, it's similar to the whole, like, I want to, I got to buy an up a, a system. That's a, a mini tower with upgradable Ram slots and a, a processor card because you never know. I might upgrade my stuff and then they never do. It, it's that same sort of thing where it's a frame of mind of like, yeah, but I want the option. Yeah. I'm a, I, I'm going to game the system in some way. And it's just, it's, I don't think it's even realistic. No. And, and also like, I feel like if you're in the situation where it, software is being updated on that every couple of years, we have a big new iteration, we make a charge for it. It means that there are features that they've held off that you haven't been able to get until they were ready to put it in front of you. And like, exactly, you could have been more productive and have more cool stuff coming out more frequently and not held to that idea of waiting for the next big rev- revision. Adobe is adding stuff to Photoshop all the time mm-hmm. because we're all subscribers, right? And so they can just roll it out. And one thing they do that's very good, I don't know if any if everybody knows about this, but like also Adobe keeps a, la- a library, a catalog of versions. So if you don't want the latest version, I actually just had this happen where a bug in the latest version of Photoshop bit me. And you know what I did? I uninstalled it. And then I went to the Creative Cloud app and I picked an earlier mm. version because they're all there, you know, you want to install Photoshop 2021. It's like, yeah, okay, it's there. 
and then you install it. And that keeps people on older systems available as part of their subscription. Like, and, and Apple doesn't have that in the app store right now, which is a problem. I, I will grant you. But like, I love the fact that Photoshop updates just happen when they happen instead of having a monolithic. Like right now with Final Cut on the Mac and, and Logic on the Mac, they have Apple has two choices. They either just release the update with big new features and give it to everybody who's bought Logic Pro or Final Cut Pro in the last seven years or whatever. Or they don't. And they hold it. Or they deprioritize it because they're like, well, yeah, but what's the point? Everybody who's using this app has already bought it. In a subscription model, you're, you actually have to serve the people you're, who are your subscribers and you can do it whenever you want instead of holding it for an artificial release like so much software used to in the past. So I'm sure you're going to be reviewing these, at least one of them, probably, you know, doing some kind of like big coverage when they're available. Probably both. I mean, not from the, I'm not, I can't review them from the perspective of a professional video editor or a professional audio ed- or musician, right? Mm-hmm. But I can at least, I know enough about both of them and use both of them regularly that I should be able to um, understand more about how they work and, and, and how they work on the iPad too. And so will you be assuming to like take the approach of these of like, or like thinking about it in terms of this is the software that justifies the iPad Pro? Like, is that the kind of thing that you think you might be considering when, when looking at these apps? No, I, I, I think there are two things here, right? There's the meta story about it that we've already talked about. And then there are how are they as apps, right? And I think those are separate issues. Like, yeah. I do think there there is a story, and I kind of already wrote a bunch of it in my post last week, which is just, what does this mean for the platform? In the end, though, the apps are the apps. The apps don't represent the platform. The apps are apps that run on the platform, and how are they? And there is a larger story. Like, if they're disappointing, or if they're successful, or if they do interesting things, that reflects on the platform, but that's not the same as saying like, like for example, if the apps are great, it doesn't excuse the fact that they're so late in terms of the meta issue, but it also doesn't matter if they're here and they're great. Because mm. that's what people I think want to know is, can I use this thing? So I do think those are separate issues. Um, and I'm very optimistic. Like I said, I've got my concerns that maybe they haven't learned some of the lessons of the iPad uh, Pro experience. Uh, it, you know, You could read Apple's marketing to be, uh, we tested it with touch and we threw in some keyboard shortcuts. Good luck. And you can draw things with the pencil. If that's all that's there and it's not just simplified for the marketing, I'm kind of concerned. But like, again, that's down to the nitty gritty of the product. I love, and, and and this is phase one, right? I mean, now they're on the on the platform. Now they're a subscription model and on the platform. So here we go. In, the, in a way, this is the beginning of this process. I'm glad though that the that the platform owner has finally put its stamp on the platform. Um, I guess what's left Xcode. <laughs> yes, but uh, but these these are 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 going to be here soon, and that is, I again with all the attendant frustration about how we got to here, it is important that the platform owner has taken its professional level products and put it on its professional level hardware. That matters. It really does. This episode of Upgrade is brought to you by Factor. 
Spring's here, and who doesn't want wholesome and convenient meals to energize you for warmer, more active days and keep you on track with reaching your goals? Factor is America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit and can help you fuel up fast with ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. You'll save time, eat well, and tackle everything on your to-do list. If you're too busy to cook this May, you can skip the trip to the grocery store, skip the chopping, skip the prepping, skip the cleaning. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are ready in just two minutes, so all you have to do is heat and enjoy, then get back outside and soak up the warmer weather. Factor offer delicious, flavor-packed options on the menu each week to fit a variety of lifestyles, including keto, calorie smart, which are around uh, less than 550 calories per serving, vegan and veggie, which you have the option to add a protein to on selected meals, and Protein Plus, which have 30 grams of protein or more per serving. And because they're prepared by chefs and approved by dietitians, each meal has everything that you need. With more than 34 weekly options, there's always something new to try. Plus, you can choose from more than 45 add-ons, including breakfast items like apple cinnamon pancakes, man, that sounds good, bacon and cheddar egg bites, potato bacon and egg breakfast skillet, plus cold pressed juices shakes and smoothies i'm getting hungry now if you're looking to pack in more protein you can add on filling options like a salmon filet or chicken wings to your factor meals as well jason i think you got some factor meals right i got a box absolutely lauren and i were eating them Mm. uh they're good um we have used other i'm how should i phrase this and say other services we'll say we have used other services that are similar to this in terms of providing sort of ready-to-eat meals that you heat up and this is a cut above, I will tell you. I have used some other services where they were salty and weird and bad. And like the factor stuff is good. It doesn't feel like some sort of like, you know, when you're eating it that you can you can taste the convenience and it doesn't taste good. It's not like that, right? The, the, the chicken dishes were, the chicken was so good, like high quality chicken breast in the chicken dishes. Um, I just, yeah, I was very impressed. And Lauren too, um, she took them to work because it was convenient mm. to have uh, something she can microwave and eat at work. Um, I have, I'm here at home by myself um, and make myself a lunch. Same story. Very high quality. Very impressed with the, with the, the quality of all the ingredients and that they didn't taste like, you know, like, I, like how much sodium is in this thing. I, I just, I don't know. In competitive products, I've had this feeling like this is not, this seems really engineered and that is not the vibe I got from the factor in meals at all. Not only is Factor cheaper than takeout, their meals are ready faster than restaurant delivery. Just two minutes. And you can be rest assured you're making a sustainable choice because Factor offset 100% of their delivery emissions to your door, source 100% renewable energy for their production sites and offices, and feature sustainably sourced seafood in their meals. This May, get Factor and enjoy clean eating without the hassle. Simply choose your meals and enjoy fresh, flavor-packed meals delivered to your door, ready in just two minutes. No prep, no mess. Head to factormeals.com com slash upgrade 50 and use the code upgrade 50 to get 50% off your first box. That's upgrade 50 at factormeals.com slash upgrade 50 to get 50% off your first box. Our thanks to Factor for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. Let's finish up with some ask upgrade questions. Stuart wrote in and asked if XROS is going to be gesture based. Does this mean you would effectively be using a touch-based interface for a virtual Mac? And if so, could this be the spur for the rumored touch-based Macs? 
I mean, I expect them to behave like macOS does today and that mm-hmm. there aren't macOS updates for this. So when macOS supports touch, I think you might be able to use it for touch. But in the meantime, you know, you're going to be remote controlling a Mac um, using the Mac input methods, yeah. right? Yeah. I would expect for if you are looking at a Mac screen, right, which could be a thing that you could do in this headset, you know, it's it's let's just say you could either virtualize it or you could, which is not what they're going to do, or you could do like some kind of screen sharing, right? Like an airplay kind of thing to, to the, to the, um, to the headset. In that scenario, my imagination would be that you would either a use some kind of like hand tracked pointer, right? Like you're not going to be touching, but you would move your finger and click, but you're clicking a pointer that you'll see on the screen. Or more realistically, as you say, you will be using an actual physical mouse in your hand and clicking it. Like the pseudo touch interface that Stuart is suggesting, I reckon will be what we'll see in the iPad, right? Like the idea of these iPad apps being able to run on the headset, that like you would be reaching out with your hand and virtually touching interface elements on the iPad apps, but not on the Mac. Does that make sense to you? Like, do you, does, that, does that track of what you yeah. think? No, I mean, bottom line, it's, it's uh, you'll be able to touch on, on operating systems that support touch. Um, you will not on ones that don't. Like, right? It's just, you will, these are virtual devices that will follow the rules. I mean, also, I don't believe these, the uh, headset's going to run macOS, so it's basically going to be like you're connecting over screen sharing to a, a Mac in, in one way or another, right? It's not going to run Mac OS. It may run iPad apps natively, but the Mac, it's going to be a screen sharing window anyway. But yeah, I think iPad apps will have, it will have touch just because they do. And maybe, and maybe it will be uh translation, like catalyst, like in some way where there'll be a gesture you can do that translates on the iPad to a touch gesture or something like that. I, I don't know, right, what that would be like. But fundamentally, I I don't think this is the spur for touchscreen-based Macs. But if they do touchscreen-based Macs, I would imagine that the touches will be, uh, you know, will be a part of the interface at some point because it will be an additional input method. Yep. Uh, new friend of the show, Ramon, from last episode wrote in to ask after watching google's pixel fold announcement last week i was wondering with smartphones fast evolving into even more highly capable computers should we stop categorizing them as phones and transition the category to something like portable computers or a new name altogether um too too late i feel like <laughs> we missed bad. the boat i was wondering if foldables would do it like if if that kind of um form factor change would enable some kind of like new name to emerge but everyone just calls them folding phones so even though like there is equally folding tablets as they are folding phones right like it just depends on like which one you think of mentally as the primary um i think there's nothing we could do and like realistically the name doesn't matter because as we continue through history the word phone will mean pocket computer more than handset with a rotary dial right like this is such a prevalent device type that as people continue to age that 
word phones actually just means pocket portable computer anyway right like it's yeah just, that's what that's what phone means yeah that's what it means now to basically everyone in the world really like if somebody said to you can you pass me the phone and there was a cordless telephone and a cell phone next to each other which one would you give them like if 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 jason said to me can you pass me the phone or pass me my phone, and I, and I was in his house, and there were these two things next to each other, I'd pick up his iPhone. I wouldn't pick up his, like, cordless phone. What's he going to do with that thing? Make a call? No way. Not happening. Yeah. Mufi asks, now that Google has turned on pass keys for their accounts, how long until we get the same for our Apple accounts? I don't know. This is I, I this is a challenge, right? Because you you can't use your keychain for your Apple ID either, right? It's you got to log into it manually. Anybody who's gotten that that thing is like, oh, you need to enter in your Apple ID password. You can, oh my god, my Apple ID password is very complicated, mm-hmm. <laughs> and now I have to tap it in on a oh on a little touch screen. It's uh, I hate it. So yeah, great. I I wonder what all the security ramifications are, right? Like that's that's the thing is Apple has put so much into the Apple ID. The question is like. How do you secure the Apple ID so that you could use something like passkeys to get to everywhere on your Apple ID? And and is Apple comfortable with that? Because once, as we've talked about before on this show, once you have a certain level of authentication, you can run off with all the data and, you know, right? It's It can be scary. At the same time, imagine how much easier life would be if you could log into your Apple account entirely using biometric authentication all the time or most of the time using a passkey i would love that so i just i feel like there's a complex security issue here that probably requires an understanding of how apple's apple id system works on the inside that we don't know but i have mm. a great confidence in the fact that apple is behind passkeys knows that they are a user experience win and would like to do them everywhere they possibly can but it might not be in all the places that we want it for some good and esoteric security reasons. I'm 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 hesitant of passkeys for now. Like I don't know if I fully understand the ramifications of using these. I I am using passkeys for my internet service provider. So when we moved, I set up a new account with this company and they offered a passkey. And I was like, okay, right? This was months ago. (laughs) I was like, fine. And I would say so far, trying to log in on Safari on my Mac has been complicated, I think is the best way to put it. Like Hmm. it, it hasn't been super smooth. Like it's trying, I think this is, really the way that this company has implemented the login on their website has been the biggest issue where like on the iPhone it really understands passkeys but on the on their web version just wants me to put in my password and like it it took quite a lot of digging around to find the way to do the biometric authentication as they were calling it which also isn't what it is you know what i mean like it's a passkey is it's on like to refer to it as biometric authentication made it complicated but i did it for me it's just one of those things where i kind of want to see how it shakes out like i believe in what they're attempting to achieve but i know this is going to cause so many problems for so many things just because of the practicalities of making this move and so like in um the article that dan wrote in six colors about this google thing he made a great point of like 
What about shared passwords? Like, here's the thing. We all know we shouldn't do it, but sometimes you have no choice. You know, like, for example, me and Jason have some shared passwords, right? Like, yep. there is, n- for all of our social media accounts, for our hosting of the show, like the audio, these services don't have multiple accounts. So we have to share the password. Sharing a pass key, I don't even know if it's possible right now, but it's complicated even if it would be. So like... It's early days yet, right? Exactly. And I think that goes in... If you're Apple and you're t- talking about the gold standard, the Apple ID, the thing that unlocks everything, you ha- want to get it right. I wouldn't you know, be surprised if they do something to interconnect pass keys more even at WWDC. They might start right? offering it, maybe? Right. But like, it's going to take some time. Yeah. I will say that is one of the, um, one of the, pl- the, the, the passwords I would change last. Right? Would be my Apple ID one. <laughs> That's, I, I'm going to have to, that, I'm going to go very far before I change that one to a pass key. Like, if you think about how many devices and how many accounts touch that super that one feels very dangerous if you would like to send in a question of your own for a future episode of the show you can go to upgradefeedback.com and you can send in your ask upgrade question you can also send in your feedback your follow-up and your snow talks too until next week's episode, if you want to catch Jason online, go to sixcolors.com. You can also hear Jason's podcasts at theincomparable.com and, of course, here on Relay FM. You can listen to my shows here on Relay FM too and check out my work over at cortexbrand.com. You can find us on Mastodon. Jason is at jsnell on zeppelin.flights. I am at imike on mike.social. And you can find the show as at upgrade on relayfm.social. You can watch video clips of the show posted to Mastodon, but also on TikTok and Instagram, where you'll find us as Upgrade Relay. Thank you to our members who support us of Upgrade Plus. Thank you to our sponsors, Factor, Text Expander, and Electric for their support of this week's episode. But most of all, thank you for listening. Until next time, say goodbye, Jason Snell. Goodbye. Thank you.